Mr. and Mrs. Autism and all the ships at sea. I'm Zach Budrick, and you're listening to uh, Stim for Stim, the relationship podcast by and for autistic people. Who else is here with me today? Hi, um, my name is Charlie Stern. Um, you may also hear Paris Geller Stern. Um, and uh, we are Jewish cancers. Um, I am a Philadelphia-based um, photographer, writer, uh, model, depending on who you ask or who I'm talking to, um, sometimes BDSM historian, um, sometimes, uh, I don't know, wrestling-adjacent artist, I guess. Um, and uh, this is our second episode, but it's our first official episode um, after our warm-up. Um, and this week, we are talking about uh, being a preteen. Uh, mm-hmm. We got a question um, to our Gmail, which um, is open all the time. And you can submit your questions uh, and concerns, comments, uh, complaints. Um, but our question was, you know, what would you tell yourself as a preteen um, with the knowledge that you have now? I, I'm not reading it. This isn't verbatim. So, um, sure. Zach, if you want to, uh, is that the wording? Yeah, I can go ahead and uh, read it just so we have uh, full context. Yeah, go ahead. This is from a uh, friend of the show, Waldo Frey Bolton. Hello, I have one question relevant to my interests. If you are giving the talk to your preteen selves, what is the one piece of information or advice you would judge to be the most useful in developing healthy romantic relationships? And Charlie, do you want to go first on that? Yeah. um, I come from a context where um, I was raised very secularly um, and somewhat progressively uh but i never received sex ed in school and i never had open dialogue with my uh parents i i never you know had the talk so um all of my information growing up came from seeking it out and self-education um and that's a thing that i stand by Um, you know, the messaging from my parents was mostly from my more conservative father, uh, who told, uh, my sister and me over and over again, you know, you have to marry someone of the opposite sex. Uh, and that was kind of the, the chorus, um, you know, it, he wasn't educating us. He was just like making mean comments. And I think that um, probably a lot of our listeners um, are overlapping in in the the queer, autistic, radical circles. Um, So I'm probably talking to peers. And my advice uh, to anyone at any age, um, including myself, you know, in a time machine would be um, seek out self education. Uh, That was long winded. I'm sorry, but um, Oh, no, you're fine. Our bodies ourselves, um, if you are a person to whom um, the information applies, um, and I, I think they're starting to update um, and include all bodies, um, specifically trans bodies, but um, I haven't read any of the uh, more contemporary editions, but, um, you know, it's such an encyclopedia um, for the bodies that it covers, and it, it's a godsend. It's absolutely a godsend. Um, 
that I would I would recommend to even an adult. Um, but I think the two most um, valuable things that I carry um, even today from my self-education as a teen um, uh, are consent and lube, uh, which are mandatory, I feel. Um, yeah. I think... I think straight society is very afraid of lube and, um, you know, I don't know if we want to get into talking about WAP, um, <laughs> but like, you know, it's seen as a failure to need ease, which is really strange uh, because we should be making everything like better than before, better than our last experience, better than, sure. um, you know, who I was a year ago. Uh, so um, opening up communication, um, and also just like using something that is so objectively helpful. Um, I don't think there should be any shame. Um, and I think that applies to both communication skills and constantly improving those, uh, and, you know, uh, learning about tools. Sure. Your so, time. yeah, yeah. So, I was, and I differ from Charlie in that I was uh, diagnosed in childhood or around the age of 14. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had a problem that I feel like a lot of, uh, a lot of neuro, a lot of neurotypical uh, kids have as well, which was that, you know, I w in terms of uh, relationships and seeking them and working within them, I didn't have like an actual template that I was working from. I was mostly just working from what I had seen in fiction. And that is, of course, almost never uh, how the real world actually works. And, you know, at a certain point, I felt like, you know, I wanted a girlfriend because that seemed like where my character arc was going almost, mm -hmm. rather than there being a specific person I had a crush on. And sort of putting the the cart before the horse as far as that goes i think made things a little more confusing for me which is not great because that's already the most confusing time of a lot of people's lives and the most really only serious relationship i had uh before the age of 18 was uh it was just as one and she was also on the spectrum and I think that combined with that whole, again, that thing of all of, the, all of us faking it on some level at that age, I think hurt our communication. And, you know, I'm very grateful for the experience, but I don't think we were really meant to last. But, you know, I am very grateful that, you know, by the time I met uh, my now wife, I, you know, I had sort of the... And, and it's not it's not like even active or romantic or relationship building experience so much as, you know, knowing to expect that this is going to be confusing. You might not know exactly what you want. Your partner might not know exactly what they want. As a unit, you might not know what your uh, collective self wants either. And not rushing through that, uh, not like expecting it to follow like the coherent structure of a movie or a TV show or whatever, I think really helped me a lot in terms of being 
know, being patient in my relationship and working on it and helping it develop. And, you know, I really think that it's sort of, they say that, you know, contrary to the myth that we have more empathy than the general population. And I think that that's true, but sometimes you just need the right context to tap into that empathy. And I think that being able to draw on that experience was what was, was what enabled me to tap into that and, uh, you know, make my relationship last as long as it has. Does, does that make any sense? Yeah, I think we're both getting to the theme of, you know, rejecting should, you know, mm-hmm. um, whether societally um, through scripting and, I don't know, uh, compulsory heterosexuality, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a lot of shoulds that are set up. Um, and if we just live in the moment and uh, exercise some patience, I guess, um, then I think, yeah, for, for both of us um, and our past experiences, I think, I think that, that there's this common theme of um, figuring it out uh, for yourself because you know, you're a person and you you determine the trajectory of your life, uh, to some extent. Um, and yeah, movies aren't correct. turns out. (laughs) 100%. And honestly, you know, as much as it can really annoy me when neurotypical people are like, Oh, well that sounds like a problem everyone can relate to because know that there, there are like, parts of the experience that are exclusive to us, it was pretty liberating just to realize uh, how, how how much uh, neurotypical people are faking, the, faking it till they make it in terms mm-hmm. of these relationships as well. Yeah. Um, though they are more easily sponges um, in terms of like... Um, Nonverbal cues, but also um, this weird double speak that everybody's supposed to, um, you know, know about, uh, where you talk around um, a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm very blunt because I don't know how else to be. Um, But the sort of. I'm picturing, you know, a movie theater date with a yawn and a stretch and then you're you're you've got your arm around the other person. Like that's not that's not really possible but with us um but they learn they learn that kind of subtlety and they learn um they don't have that voice in their head that has alarm bells going off like wrong 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 you did this mm-hmm. wrong you don't get it um so, yeah, that, that's the huge difference um, for me because, you know, before a certain age, I didn't know how to uh, touch others, for example. Sure. And it's funny because uh, my I, I would not normally feel comfortable speculating about this, but she has speculated about it uh, as herself and... Uh, has expressed the desire to come onto the show at some point, but my wife, Rachel, uh, when we were, I'm referring to speculating in terms of the extent to which she is neurotypical because she Mm -hmm. has long suspected she's not. But when we were first starting to get serious in our relationship, 
we sort of uh, sort of came to this mutual understanding that you know at a certain point it made sense for us to kiss for the first time but we felt like sort of vaguely ceremonial about it and we were just we were just sort of uh sitting on my bed in my college dorm and we were wondering if we were building this up too much because you know both of us being fairly inexperienced kissers it was probably kind of gonna suck in a vacuum and i had my computer open on this itunes playlist that I I don't even remember if it was a playlist or it was just like generic shit I liked and uh, the Postal Service's Recycled Air was playing while we talked this out, which is like a perfect, like, awkward young love song. And when we finally decided, uh, you know, we were going to go for it and kiss, the song switched over and it's the Rolling Stones Rocks Off instead. And that was when we kissed. (laughs) (laughs) What a time capsule. Mm -hmm. It's... And, you know, I I compulsively, like, sort of collect, like, little details of my memories as well. So the sort of vague awkwardness of being so close and yet so far in terms of that moment has really mm-hmm. made it stick with me as well. That's incredible. Mm. Yeah, the, the pressure of the first kiss is um, so disruptive to my life sometimes that um, I... I try to get it over with, um, or, you know, I don't try anymore, but there, there are definite times, um, especially during college when I was, you know, meeting more and more people and, uh, kissing more and more people and fucking more and more people. Um, yeah, there was one time, um, where, you know, my date and I had just parked in a parking garage and we're going to walk over to the movie theater. And I just like, I made us kiss before we like got into things and before he like lit up a cigarette and just like, I wanted to get it out of the way. Um, and then my, um, my current hookup, my current, um, COVID hookup, I met a long time ago, um, during college on tour and, um, his band had just played. He was about to leave. I wanted his number. Um, and I wanted something in the future so I just kissed him and then made him leave, uh, you know, so we didn't have to get that figured out. We already did sure. it. And then, you know, then we started talking a year later. Um, so I, I deeply relate. A first kiss is like such an opening of floodgates. It's such a change yeah, in dynamics and feelings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I support that. Yeah, and the thing about uh, early in my relationship with Rachel is just that, again, because of my relative lack of experience, there is almost like this sort of uh, uh, high school chastity to it as Mm -hmm. well. Like, I would just be uh, sort of waiting for her uh, outside the dorm. Like, we didn't have cars because it was a city campus and we walked everywhere, but if we had, I'd have been sort of leaning against my car and we she was just to illustrate how long ago this was uh back then i was still catholic and she was independent of me in the process of converting and uh, so we would go to mass a lot together just because there was this big uh frankly gorgeous uh cathedral just 
right by the Virginia Commonwealth University campus. And it was, you know, it's, that's another thing that I've never really thought about how lucky we were in that, that uh, particular uh, city campus, there was so much like regular uh, sort of rambling around college kids stuff to do that it was, you know, it was easy to come up with, uh, you know, like hashtag fun date ideas. Yeah. Because I don't know what, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what, how this person and I hang out yet necessarily, but, you know, I, I know that I know of like activities that most people enjoy and, you know, assuming she is one of those people, then we can just, we can just go from there. Truly. And I want to point yeah. out that we are both talking about our college selves. Um, mm -hmm. And the original question was about preteenhood. Um, oh, but right. my scope right. personally, um, you know, is a lot wider uh, because I mm -hmm. don't really remember a lot of my childhood. And, and parts of that are, are just, you know, I grew up in a very violent <laughs> home and, you know, my brain won't remember and can't remember. Um, but I, I definitely feel like my preteen years were like through college and the year after, because I still had no fucking idea what I was doing. And, you know, no one had opened the door in my mind, um, yet that, uh, I'm autistic. So I was just sort of flailing around, um, and just, you know, unlucid unaware, mm -hmm. uh, not communicating with myself and therefore not able to really communicate with the outside world. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the echo of our bodies ourselves, um, that was one of my textbooks, um, in one of my college courses. So, uh, that's just, you know, perennially important to me, I think. And I think that I think what you're saying makes perf perfect sense. And I think that, and I don't, I I don't mean to go, to like deliberately, uh, like not grant the premise of the question, which I think is a very good question. But I think that this is another of these uh, sort of things that is regimented without us necessarily agreeing to it. Uh, mm -hmm. Just this idea of how this is what we learn in X part of our lives. And this is what we learn in X part of our lives. And this is what we, cause like there's, I, I'm, I'm 31 years old. I barely feel like I know anything. And yet, you know, I'm, I'm functioning like someone who knows what people are expected to know at 31. So, yeah. so yeah, I think, I think what you're saying uh, makes, makes perfect sense in terms of like our, our and our emotional adolescence can be very different from our physical as adolescence as well. Like I, I was spent probably way too long having a lot of the uh, whiny teen bullshit going on that, like to some extent, teens are supposed to have. Uh, like past the point that I think they're we're expected to have it, which you know maybe that's unfair, but. Maybe some of it's not. I mean, it's, I, cut me off. I'm starting to ramble. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Um, I mean, 
Yeah, I growing up, I always had a very judgmental adult in my brain. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've always expected myself to be an adult. And I've always like scolded myself um, when I'm not being an adult, like even even as a young child. Um, And yeah, chronological time uh, doesn't really make the most sense in, in terms of, you know, at this age, we're supposed to have this stage of, you know, verbal skill, reading skill, blah, blah, blah. Um, we know for autistic people, like, you know, not everybody is going to match up to these, like, prescribed phases. Um, and growing up, you know, my dad was in the military, so my mom was raising us alone and we were kind of raising ourselves and we were kind of raising ourselves with, uh, TV and the media we were consuming and, um, various books from the children's section of Barnes and Noble, but with an asterisk, you know, the, the novels about the kids with the problems like Joey Pigza, um, coming from a broken home and things like that. Um, so, uh, I was an adult as a child and I am currently trying to work myself out of being a child as an adult. Yeah. Um, and especially, you know, 2015, 2016, um, there were a lot of traumatic things that happened to me. And one of those traumatic things, um, that happened to me also happened to you. Um, and I don't know if we want to, talk about it we you know to briefly say we had a a dear friend die and that's that's how you and I know each other um but me suffering that loss and then having to get stable in my life again and um get properly medicated that's when my real life kind of started you know the person I am today is a grieving person um but the person I am today is, a, you know, a post-realization, out, queer, trans, autistic person. Um, and before a certain point, I was just sort of like a brain floating in blood, powering a meat body, you know? Sure. Yeah, and I think, you know... Honestly, part of that is uh, why I think we vibe so well as co-hosts on this particular topic, because not only did uh, we uh, did we meet um, over that particular uh, trauma, but you know, I I also had uh, I, I'm not not trying to one up or anything, but I also had a very difficult uh, 2016, and mm-hmm. the I. For instance, I lost my job uh, later that year, and this was my sort of my first big boy job, and I feel like that's shaken my confidence in the way that I'm still dealing with. And, yeah. you know, so that year, uh, doing what it did to the both of us, it just almost feels like we are, because again, with these fluid definitions of human development, it almost feels like we are like childhood friends who have grown up together in the intervening years. That's really sweet. Oh. Oh, I'm like that's... tearing up. No, oh, but, geez, but I'm that's sorry. really no, that's really true though. 
yeah, I, I don't feel like I was the person that I am before that year, you know, and, and it's unfortunate right. to a certain extent that the, the person we lost and, and the other people I've lost, you know, I am kind of an unknowable person. Uh, you know, I, I would be unknowable to them if they were still alive and I didn't go through the grief of losing them, which is really freaky. Um, you know, they are such a part of me. Um, but in this really horrible, fucked up way that, you know, I'm this person because of the coping I had to, um, employ, uh, you know, when they died. Yeah, no, that's, that. I, again, I, I think you're spot on with that. And, you know, to go back to what this sort of uh, compulsion to sort of format things like, uh, like a movie or a TV show, you know, we, it's, again, to some extent, neuro, neurotypical people uh, do that too, in terms of expecting, you know, this to all uh, like be structured, like this part of our life is like this way, and this part of our life uh, is like that way. And of course, it doesn't pan out like that. But you know, that's another example of a, phenom- a phenomenon that I'm sure there's a German word for, whereby uh, things that autistic people do to cope are considered like aberrant when we use them, and less so when there's the version that, that neurotypical people do. Mm-hmm. Like even stimming, you know, everybody, apparently, I just found this out that neurotypical people also stim, but it's not, um, it's not quote unquote weird or visible sometimes. Well, remember the, remember the, remember fidget spinners a few years ago? And like, it's, it's another thing we need a term for is like when, it becomes like trendy for neurotypical people to get into something that we used to cope, like weighted blankets or another thing. Oh, that's true. That's a big one, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That there's there's a term in physical disability circles, um, and maybe maybe some mental disability circles. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of overlap. Um, but crip tax, you know. Crip, short for cripple. Uh, the mm-hmm. crip tax is, um, you know, when your insurance won't pay for a wheelchair or won't pay for right. your compression garments or, um, you know, you have to move to a building that has an elevator um, that might be way more expensive than um, an apartment where a, a, another person could use the stairs. Um you know, all of these accessibility tools are so expensive and no one is looking out for you until the neurotypical and able-bodied society decide that they're cool, like winded blankets. This week, we decided to share with each other our current obsessions slash special interests. So this week, uh, I found out that there was a uh, plot uh, shortly after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated to rob his grave. And 
the the masterminds behind the plot were a counterfeiting gang in uh, Springfield, Illinois, where he's, of course, buried, and their best engraver was in jail, and the idea was that they would steal Lincoln's corpse and hold it for ransom until this guy was released from jail. And they did, I mean, they didn't realize they had a snitch in the organization, but it didn't work anyway because the that they realized that they could not physically move the casket and they just sort of uh, went left and wandered back into their regular watering hole where the cop showed up having been tipped off by the snitch. And I just, I, I want a movie about this by Danny McBride or somebody so bad. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. That's so fucking weird. I know. I know. Wow. Well, mine is also sort of organized crime. Um, I've been talking about this for a while, so I think I've already told you about this, but um, my sort of ongoing uh, journey as an American Jew, um, as the child of someone who is so, so hyper-assimilated and so American and patriotic and, you know, cop, military, fucking Boston Red Sox. Um <laughs> You know, he, my father would rather pretend to be an Italian American than, <laughs> than admit that he's a Jew and a second generation immigrant. Um, so for my childhood, he was always watching The Sopranos and trying to emulate Tony Soprano oh, in, in every way. No, it's, it's insane. And so, um, I've been sort of doing, um, once in a while, I can't handle a lot of it, but I, I've been trying to do deep dives on, um, mobster media, um, you know, the Sopranos, Goodfellas, um, anything in that genre that I can get my hands on to really like piece together my own experience of being like a weirdly like Italian flavored Jew in some respects, you know, because like, uh, you know, as much as I hate my father, like I have so many of his like mannerisms and culture. And, um, when I was growing up also, you know, his closest friends, um, were Lebanese. So I have this like pan Mediterranean oh, wow. sort of identity um, where my father is trying to be James Gandolfini, um, while also like, you know, speaking Arabic and having Turkish coffee and things like that, but he's only allowing himself to do that, uh, because he is passing, um, mm -hmm. in general society and, you know, in his, in his police department community as Italian. So yeah, that's my ongoing thing. And I'll be... I'll be trying to write something a little more serious um, in the coming maybe year, I guess, um, of like my sort of like, because I'm very tacky. I, I, I dress really tacky. I dress like sort of a, a Sopranos flavored Fran Fine sometimes. And so I just like, I'm so obsessed with myself and I'm so obsessed with um, my intergenerational trauma yep. that that's that's kind of yeah that's what's going on for me personally and creatively um and that's definitely a special interest of mine wow i did 
So I'm going somewhere with this, but have you seen uh, Drive, the Ryan Gosling film? Yes, I saw that on the first date with the guy who I made kiss me before he oh, smoked wow. a cigarette. Oh. Yes, yes. I was just thinking. That was my first date in college ever. That's amazing. I was I was just thinking of it because uh, you know, of course, the villains in that, uh, played by um, Albert Brooks and Ron Perlman, are uh, mm-hmm. Jewish mobsters who are sort of uh, like simultaneously obsessed with emulating the aesthetics of uh, Italian mobsters, but also deeply resentful of how anti-Semitic the Italian mafia is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also like such a huge history of Jewish organized crime. Absolutely. And, um, you know, hand in hand with uh, Jewish unionization and mm-hmm. Jewish anarchists and communists. So there's there's a whole history there. And I yeah, Meyer, as Meyer. much. Meyer Lansky. Yeah, uh, I was just gonna say, like that the one of my it's one of my favorite uh, historical anecdotes of Meyer Lansky, uh, like leading at all the the his entire Jewish gang to just walk into the Bund's meeting at Madison Square Garden and busting heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm sorry. I don't know as much about that. So I'm sorry. I just I just kind of went. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, no, no, no. Okay. It's fine. It was just it's. Yeah, it was yeah the 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 Jewish mafia busted up an American Nazi rally in New York in the early 1940s. Is the short version of the story. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. There, there's such a rich history of of self defense violence. Um, yeah. and I think sometimes liberals on the internet forget. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I think uh, that is about going to do it for us for this episode. So, but we have decided off mic that we're going to try to do this every other week. So we hope to see the rest of you uh, the week of the uh, 25th through the 31st, Spooky Week. And also something that I was remiss in not doing immediately, but we will be putting up full transcripts concurrent with every completed episode from now on, just because we know that that is an essential thing for accessibility. Mm -hmm. And I apologize that, um, you know, maybe our listeners thought we would be uh, talking in the vein of like Pen15, and it would be like uh, kind of a a fun romp through middle school. Uh, And then, of course, we... We got sidetracked, but, you know, it happens. Uh, I mean, ideally, we will be doing this for long enough to have time for more of that, too. But thank you so much for the question, and we will have that uh, email address at the again at the end of the show for anyone who's interested in sending in more questions. So we're we will see you in about uh, we'll see you in about two weeks. Transcripts for the show are available uh, in our show notes uh, through Medium. And we will see you back here uh, the week of Halloween. Yay. Thank you, listeners. I'm really excited, personally. Um, yeah, me too. I'm jazzed. I'm stoked. All right. Uh, pumped, even. Pumped. Uh, what is it? Chuffed? Chuffed? British? That's the British one, yeah. British I people think say so. chuffed. Yeah. Oh, God. We're incredibly chuffed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Stim for Stim is recorded and produced by me, Zach Budrick, and Charlie Stern. Alyssa Huntley is our editor. If you have a question, 
you can get in touch with us at STIM number four STIM at gmail.com as STIM number four STIM at gmail.com. Oh, it's gonna outside.